ain't afraid of no ghosts. Ghostbusters! Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews for 25 years. As of this year, I started in 1996, and you can read all of my written work at my website. That's at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other podcast that I do concurrent with this one, except it covers more recent movies that are out in theaters or on streaming services, and it's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Check out Quipster.net for all the details on that. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of this three-part look at comedies from the 1980s featuring ghosts. 1984's Ghostbusters was the first entry. Of course, what else would I follow that up with but 1989's Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2 is a PG-rated film. It does have some scary images and some language. One hour and 48 minutes is the runtime. This pretty much brings back the main cast from the first film, Bill Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Ernie Hudson, Rick Moranis, and Annie Potts. It also adds Peter McNichol, Wilhelm von Homburg, Kurt Fuller, Harris Eulen, and some twin infants in here, Will and Hank Deutschendorf. The director is Ivan Reitman yet again, and the screenplay once again credited to Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. Now, obviously, on last episode, I did talk about what a success Ghostbusters was. At that time, considered the highest-grossing comedy of all time, although that's arguable considering Beverly Hills Cop made more in the same year. But it was so successful that just in its opening week, there were already talks at Columbia about creating a primetime Ghostbusters TV show that had an all-new cast— But when the profits continued to come in, they skyrocketed over the summer. They knew that Columbia was going to want not a TV show, but another film sequel. As early as November of 1984, the stars Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray, along with director Ivan Reitman, they started having meetings trying to lay out plans for what they wanted to do for Ghostbusters 2. And they discussed a lot of ideas, many of them pretty wild, including extraterrestrial ghosts. There was also... Other potential Murray Aykroyd starring vehicles that they talked about, like a remake of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, for instance. By March of 1985, Aykroyd announced he'd be writing Ghostbusters 2 while he was on location filming Spies Like Us in Europe. However, Aykroyd was exhausted by the sheer size and the scope of a Ghostbusters sequel, and so he decided to remain in Europe to complete some smaller-scale comedies he had in mind, like his spoof of Dragnet, as well as this comedy about the Royal Canadian Mounties that he hoped that Bill Murray could star along with him in, called Law of the Yukon. And he remained there in Europe until he was scheduled to come back to the United States to film Armed and Dangerous, although he never quite got to make that movie. Now, Bill Murray at this time, he had just done back-to-back films without stopping, including his passion project, The Razor's Edge, and that failed really miserably, not only commercially, but critically. So he decided he needed to take some time off, and he moved to France for a while, where he avoided having to commit to any movies at all, especially Ghostbusters 2. He proclaimed that sequels were based on greed, and they diminished the appeal of the first film. He was going to have to be brought back kicking and screaming if he was going to get brought back at all. Nevertheless, he didn't want to completely shut the door. In mid-1986, 
Aykroyd and Murray, they got together for more Ghostbusters 2 ideas, and one included avoiding sequelitis by having the actors come back not as Ghostbusters, but as completely different characters instead of the Ghostbusters. Essentially a sequel with the same cast, but doing a completely different story idea. Kind of a novel way to go. They took some baby steps, though. They agreed to star in this remake of His Girl Friday, the classic film from the 1940s, made by Martin Ransohoff. They were going to co-star with Deborah Winger with a script that was written specifically with them in mind. Now, on his own, Aykroyd eventually did complete a first draft script for Ghostbusters because the first film's climax took place atop a New York high-rise building. Aykroyd's new concept was to try to set the film somewhere else other than New York and somewhere other than a high-rise. So he decided to set most of what happens in Ghostbusters 2, at least in his first draft, in Scotland. Dana Barrett was going to get kidnapped. She would be taken underground through this fairy ring, serving as this portal to a vast underground civilization of druids. The Ghostbusters would come to the rescue. They would battle some of these foes, including a frightening banshee. As with Aykroyd's first Ghostbusters script, his story ideas proved too ambitious and inaccessible for mainstream audiences. One concept involved the Ghostbusters traveling through a tunnel for three days through this pneumatic tube that was like 2,000 miles long, and a lot of other zany ideas that were probably too expensive to film. After reading Aykroyd's script, Reitman called the series of meetings. He wanted to get Aykroyd's script into shape, much like he did for the first film. So Ramus and Aykroyd agreed to account for the passage of time between the two movies because they were a little bit delayed in getting this started before a variety of reasons. Ramus felt that in the intervening years, the Ghostbusters would be like a worldwide chain. So they could still set the action in Scotland if they wanted to. But in their revision, as they started working on it, they decided to make Peter and Dana Barrett married with a baby, and for comedy's sake, that baby would eventually get possessed by a ghost and then start walking and talking on its own, kind of like an adult in a baby's body. Eventually, though, they determined that centering the story so much on Peter was upsetting the balance of the overall story of the Ghostbusters It marginalized the other three Ghostbuster characters. So they decided they were going to rewrite it so that Dana, in the intervening years, had left Peter because of his lack of commitment, and she would marry somebody else, presumably the Stiff, the violinist who uses nasal spray in the first Ghostbusters. But now, at the beginning of the film, she would be divorced with an infant boy, and that would mean a second chance for Peter. Now, around this time, David Putnam, he became the chairman and CEO for Columbia Pictures. Although he was now the head of a major studio, he seemed to not like the Hollywood studio system at all. He determined that the way things were being run was not conducive to making good movies. He determined that talent agencies in particular were squeezing studios, escalating budgets left and right. Putnam, now that he was in charge, he refused to entertain expensive star-studded packages where the studio would have little creative control. And in so doing, he started talking a little too much, perhaps, a little too broadly. In an off-the-record British-American Chamber of Commerce luncheon speech, Putnam asserted that he was no longer interested in catering to these takers who do not give anything back to the industry. Unfortunately, he mentioned Bill Murray specifically as a taker, although he would deny saying it later. 
Putnam did not know, though, that Murray's lawyer was in attendance at that luncheon. And so word leaked to Murray's talent agent, Mike Ovitz, a big power player in Hollywood at the time. He also represented Reitman and Ramis. And then it appeared in page six in the New York Post. And that's when Murray vowed he was never going to make any movies for the studio as long as Putnam was in charge. And the other actors backed him up. Murray and Ackroyd pulled out of His Girl Friday. That was going to be a Columbia release, after which Putnam decided to put that project into turnaround, although it did later get repackaged, for a release in 1988 as Switching Channels. Nevertheless, Coca-Cola, which owned Columbia, they put pressure directly on Putnam to make Ghostbusters 2 happen, no matter what. So he considered proceeding with Ghostbusters 2 because he had already burnt the bridge, he felt, with Murray and company, he was going to make a whole new Ghostbusters crew, a mostly black cast led by Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby happened to be Coca-Cola's spokesman at the time, and he was newly signed to a film contract under Putnam. But Bill Cosby had ideas of his own. He was more interested in developing his own story idea for something that would become Leonard Part 6. Uh, under pressure, in April 1987, Putnam told the press that Ghostbusters 2 would indeed be in production by November of that year. And this came as a complete surprise to Reitman and all of the other cast, who reiterated that they were not going to work for Putnam. By September of 1987, with very few successes to tout in his tenure there, Putnam was pushed out of his position and his three-year contract a couple of years early, and that made way for a new production head, Dawn Steele. And Dawn Steele got the job because she was going to make Ghostbusters 2 her top priority. With Putnam out of the way, Murray soon met with Aykroyd and Ramis and Reitman and Ovitz, and he came there to hear their pitch for the story that they had thus far. That luncheon went for four hours because it started as a big gripe session for all of the resentments that they had felt since the last time they had met, mostly aimed at Putnam. But after they cleared the air, which took some time, Murray listened and he liked their new ideas much better than the ones that he felt he had heard from Aykroyd alone. Murray at that time had just made Scrooge, and while he was not really keen on just jumping right back into acting, he did feel good while he was making Scrooge that it was something that had a moral. He was irked by Putnam's accusations that he only cared about himself, so Murray wanted Ghostbusters 2 to mean something more than just a return for fat paychecks. He wanted the Ghostbusters to reflect their own reality, that they were going to join forces here to do something to help the greater good, and to help people be better. Ramis and Aykroyd then built their next revision with this in mind, with the Ghostbusters being broken up and then having to get back together to save the world one more time, with the moral that humans should treat each other with kindness or else bad things were going to happen. Ramis came up with the notion that negative energy is something that could build up over time. So New York the home of rudeness and negativity, it must be sitting on reservoirs of residual negativity underground. And that made it a place where evil spirits would dominate. And that would lead to a climax with the Statue of Liberty being possessed by one evil spirit. And to defeat this evil spirit, New Yorkers would have to be nicer in unison, at least for a while. Ramus joked that the Statue of Liberty at the end would end up laying on Wall Street, as some sort of satirical commentary of the times. 
Now, making each other laugh through this four-hour lunch meeting, Murray, he started to miss the good times with these funny guys. Ghostbusters, as I mentioned, the most fun he'd ever had making a film. He could really use the laughs in his life. So he started softening his stance on returning. But if he was going to return, the studio would have to make it worth not only his while, but everybody's. He wanted $10 million to return and that his co-stars get the same amount. But the struggling Columbia Pictures, they didn't want to spend $50 million just to get the talent back on board on top of the costly effects work. So negotiations began between the studio and the main talent and their agents, and an agreement was eventually reached. The actors would work for scale in exchange for large percentages of the gross. 15% would go to Murray, 10% to Reitman, 8% to Aykroyd, and 5% to Ramis, if they could get the film in theaters on the 4th of July weekend in 1989. That meant the shooting schedule was going to be rushed yet again. In fact, it would be two weeks shorter than the first Ghostbusters. <laughs> but that two weeks eventually became a whole month shorter than the original Ghostbusters because the release date moved up to June 23rd, and that's when they realized that Tim Burton's Batman was being released that week. And so they moved it up yet again to try to get the jump on Batman, which was heavily hyped at the time, to June 16th, 1989. Reitman had to juggle post-production on Twins, while he was handling pre-production on Ghostbusters 2. So this was a really hectic and concentrated shoot. There was also one snag involved. Sigourney Weaver insisted on making as much as her co-stars, and she was not given some of the same benefits here with their deal. And she also wanted her money up front because part of her deal for the first Ghostbusters was a percentage deal, and she never got paid. Columbia said that they never really actually turned a profit which she said that she was going to sue them and force them to do an audit if they were going to go with that excuse. Columbia decided, you know, maybe they should look into recasting Dana. Maybe a less expensive actress could play that role. But they decided they were going to retool the character altogether. A different single mother love interest for Peter was written named Lane Walker. For continuity's sake, they did hope that they could get Sigourney Weaver to do a cameo part with Dana Barrett, but Weaver declined. She either wanted something to do or she didn't want to do anything at all. Meanwhile, several actresses, they came in, they read lines with Murray for the Lane Walker role, but Murray grew very disenchanted with all of this, and he urged Columbia, pay Weaver what she wanted because she had the right chemistry to work with him. Now, with all of these new directions, they started having story issues. So several screenwriters were brought in, Big names like Elaine May and Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, they came in, they provided advice to try to fix issues, especially relating to the family-oriented aspects of their script. Also, they were having trouble with the main conflicts of their film. In their early drafts, negative feelings manifested into the rise of insects all over the place. Reitman suggested that a better way to go would be to have slime come back, specifically mood slime that became a concept Murray acquiesced on the slime concept on condition that he not be slimed again. He didn't want to go through that ever again. However, slime was still a little too abstract to be the main villain. So they concocted a powerful sorcerer to be kicking up that slime. Someone named Vigo who could channel this negative energy and become more powerful. Vigo would use the Statue of Liberty as one of his minions and then come after the Ghostbusters or attack New York. However, they determined that because Lady Liberty was kind of a symbol, really, of New York's ideals and indeed of the country as a whole, they felt that the Statue of Liberty should really stay a positive force. 
So they came up with this idea of having good slime to be able to counteract the negative slime, and the Ghostbusters would take control of the Statue of Liberty to do their bidding for the climax. Meanwhile, Sigourney Weaver, she had just been an Oscar nominee for Aliens. She grew very hot after her turns in Working Girl and Gorillas in the Mist in 1988. Indeed, she would become a double Oscar nominee in 1989. And with Murray, he happened to be on a four-year hiatus from films, except for Scrooge most recently, which did well, but not phenomenally well. Aykroyd had middling efforts since the last Ghostbusters, and Ramis had two failed comedies in Armed and Dangerous and Club Paradise. Sigourney Weaver really was the only actor among them that had surefire box office bankability for Ghostbusters. So, negotiations heated up on how to find a way to get Dana Barrett back into the film. They offered Weaver again a profit percentage, but given their past experience, she instead opted for a flat fee, $1 million to return for Ghostbusters 2. Now in the completed plot, we begin five years after the events of Ghostbusters, the heroes are zeros again, bankrupt because they got sued by the city for the destructive aftermath of clearing out the city of spooks. They claim that they made all of that up. A federal restraining order was issued prohibiting them from continuing their ghostbusting business. Peter Venkman now is the host of this cheesy local cable talk show called World of the Psychic. Ray Stance, he's now an occult bookstore owner, and he does some side work with Winston Zeddemore, cosplaying basically as themselves as Ghostbusters for children's birthday parties. Egon Spengler, he gets his job back at Columbia University, and he happens to be investigating how human emotions affect psychomagnetic energy. And Dana Barrett, she's now a single mother after leaving Venkman for his inability to commit. She had a baby, Oscar, now eight months old, with another man that we never see. Louis Tully, he's also back. He applies his knack for accounting to become a tax lawyer. And they reunite after being approached by Dana, who reports a strange occurrence involving her baby's carriage traveling on its own down the street. Very upsetting to her. So they discover, while they're doing their friend a favor, rivers of mood slime that are running beneath the city, converging on the Manhattan Museum of Art, which happens to be where Dana works as an art restorer. And one of the art pieces there includes a life-size portrait of this medieval sorcerer warlord named Vigo the Carpathian. Vigo's spirit happens to live within this portrait, and to enter into the realm of the living again, Vigo wants a baby to be his vessel to come back into the mortal realm and to continue his reign of terror. So he makes a deal with Dana's boss, Dr. Janos Poha, to secure Dana's baby, Oscar, in exchange for Janos having a date with her or something absurd like that. Now, in the original script, Peter McNichol, who would take the Janos Poha role, he was kind of a generic Ghostbusters foil, just another D-bag of a sort named Jason Locke. Now, McNichol really didn't have any interest in playing this forgettable, generic, creepy boss role, but it struck him that he could make that character a little bit extra, something more if that character had a kind of a, a connection with that ancient ruler of the fictional Carpathia. He could be also from Central Europe and therefore more apt to be under his spell. He developed this wildly exaggerated impression he used of an acquaintance that he knew who worked at this Romanian travel agency. And he started hanging around his friend and he visited the agency to try to nail down those Romanian inflections. McNichol 
decided to rewrite all of his dialogue to fit in with this new character that he created, Janos Poha, with some additional background mythology that he also channeled for that character. McNichol decided to make it wild. He wanted to wear a Beatles wig because he wanted to suggest that Beatlemania was finally hitting his remote region of the world. But Reitman nixed that particular idea because the film already had too many brunettes. So he came up with the blonde and kind of crazy locks that he has. Now, to bring back the D-bag role, though, they were going to bring William Atherton back at some point, but uh, he ended up not being able to return as Walter Peck from the first film into the new one. So they retooled the Walter Peck character to the mayor's assistant named Jack Hardemeyer. So they needed a new prick to be a foil to the Ghostbusters, and that happened to come in the form of Kurt Fuller. Now, Kurt Fuller was there. He auditioned for a, a much smaller role. Ramis had seen Fuller in a play that was recommended by his wife, and they brought him in to audition for this other role. But since William Atherton wasn't coming back, they thought Fuller, who was very impressive as a character actor, could fill that role as Jack Hardemeyer. And so he got that part. As for Vigo the Carpathian, they wanted somebody very intimidating. They brought in this ex-boxer wrestler actor, Wilhelm von Homburg. His real name is Norbert Group. But his accent and kind of a lisp it made him sometimes unintelligible. And they didn't really want to work with him any more than they had to, because according to producer Michael Gross, Wilhelm was a crude, bigoted a-hole. <laughs> so they decided to bring in Max von Sido to dub the voice for Vigo. Reportedly, von Homburg, he was completely unaware that they were going to do this. And during the preview screening at which he was in attendance, he stormed out as soon as he realized that his voice was completely dubbed. Now, as far as the smaller roles, they did bring back Ernie Hudson yet again, as well as Rick Moranis and Annie Potts. They were also going to bring on board Rick Moranis' SCTV co-star, Eugene Levy, to play his dermatologist cousin, Sherman Tully. He was going to be in a very small part getting the Ghostbusters out of the psych ward. That ended up getting cut from the final product. For the purposes of this film, a romance was struck between Janine and Lewis, as opposed to Janine and Egon, because they felt that Janine and Lewis just made the most sense for those two to be together. Annie Potts decided to wear a wig because she had to cover the hairdo that she used on Designing Women. The special effects house in this film changed from the Boss Film Company to the big one, Industrial Light and Magic. Dennis Muren was heading this particular production team, hired once the first revision was completed, for the script, Murin says Ghostbusters 2 was by far the shortest production schedule that he'd ever worked on and probably one of the most grueling, nearly 180 optical effects their group had to make, including ones that really could not be done until the actors were done shooting their scenes. In addition, the script kept changing through the production, including bringing on new ghosts, which made it even more difficult. Reitman, he was not really a director that was interested in the technical side of things. He only really made suggestions, and he gave his production crew for the effects carte blanche to do whatever they wished, so long as he deemed that it could work for the film. Muren wanted to create ghosts in this film, unlike the ones that were done in the first one. The Scaleri brothers, who are one of the first ghosts to make their appearance here, they were loosely based on criminals who had robbed Ramus's father in real life, his father's store, when he was a kid. They made these ghosts a little bit more cartoonish for the purpose of this film. They used Archie Goodwin's Uncle Creepy and Cousin Eerie 
comic book characters as their inspiration. And then as they started creating these caricatures, they started combining them with elements of the Ackroyd and Belushi comic team, the Blues Brothers. Other big technical talent was replaced for Ghostbusters 2 as well. Laszlo Kovacs, who, as I mentioned in the last episode, he shot Ghostbusters as a as a drama. He did not shoot it as he would a comedy, so he had a lot more eye for scope. Michael Chapman was brought in as the new cinematographer. He had just shot Scrooged with Murray, and he emphasized a lot less of the long shots, a lot more tight close-ups. They wanted to get more relationship building in this film to make it more personal. Now, replacing the gothic look from the original Ghostbusters of John DeCure for production design was Beetlejuice's Bo Welch. He made it much more cartoonish in his nature. Randy Edelman, who worked with Reitman on Twins just before starting Ghostbusters 2, he replaced Elmer Bernstein's mix of horror and comedy with a definitively more comic emphasis here. The soundtrack itself, in addition to that, was much more bigger. It brought in more talent this time. Instead of Arista Records, they decided to go with MCA because they wanted to bring in Bobby Brown, who was a hot star at the time. In fact, he does two songs for the soundtrack here on our own as well as We're Back. He also makes a cameo appearance as a doorman in this film. Brown's former group New Edition are also on the soundtrack. Elton John, Glenn Frey, James Taylor, Oingo Boingo, Dougie Fresh. And a new rap reiteration of the Ray Parker Jr. song, this time done by Run DMC. The accelerated shooting schedule, though, for this film meant they obviously were going to quickly fall behind because of all the technical things that had to happen. So they started taking a lot of shortcuts to try to catch up, and that reduced eventually the opportunities for comic improvisation. A lot of the luxury they had for the first film started to fall by the wayside. When they were all said and done, their first cut of this film, preview screening audiences found that the film lacked palpable conflict. They found the plot very confusing, and the ending resolved too quickly for their tastes. Reitman said it died a horrible death in that first preview screening, so he decided he was going to immediately start last-minute reshoots within a couple of months of the release date to add more obstacles for the Ghostbusters to overcome, more narrative explanations to try to to tie in all of the ghosts, the slime, and Vigo into a more cohesive whole. He also decided to basically reshoot most of the last 25 minutes of the film. Murray has gone on to say that he thinks that, that many of the funny scenes that he was very enamored with in the original script were removed during this process to make way for new ones, emphasizing effects and more cartoonish villainy. One moment where Venkman gets the crowd to sing Kumbaya at the end, that was jettisoned. It had just been done in Troop Beverly Hills in March of 1989. That was orchestrated, by the way, by the composer Randy Edelman himself, so they didn't want to get too redundant here. Slimer was supposed to have a much bigger role this time out. He would be shown as becoming friends with Lewis Tully, after Lewis decides he's going to be kind of like the fifth Ghostbuster, he was going to try to apprehend Slimer in the firehouse. He uses food as bait, and uh, but the scenes were deemed by test audiences as kind of distracting, and they didn't really react with any of the laughter or the delight that they felt that they should bringing back Slimer. So instead, he makes kind of a cameo appearance in the end credits. Slimer was made up more here to appear like he did in the real Ghostbusters cartoon that was very popular among the kids and kind of kept the franchise name alive in between 1984's film and this one. Meanwhile, Lewis Tully, he was supposed to use his accounting and lawyering skills to run the Ghostbusters business altogether, but a lot of that got cut out as well. 
Now, as far as promoting the film, just like the first Ghostbusters, that happened to be plagued by questions that was brought out by Bob Woodward's book that was coming out that year called Wired, The Short Life and Fast Times of John Belushi. Just so happens that Ghostbusters 2 was coming out with the movie adaptation of Wired that was going to be released in August of 1989. So the press was asking more questions about the death of John Belushi, which Aykroyd, he basically refused to sit for press interviews this time out because of that. And Murray determined to dance around any kind of questions that would relate to Belushi and his life. Now, when Ghostbusters 2 finally did come out, critics, they gave it middling write-ups. They called it basically too innocuous to hate, not nearly as innovative as the first effort. So a disappointment. That was the general consensus. Nevertheless, it opened to a record-setting $29.5 million in its opening week, and that happened to be that happened to be the biggest opening, at least for one week, because Batman came the next week. Enthusiasm evaporated quickly for Ghostbusters 2 once Batman was coming out, stealing all of its thunder. And Ghostbusters 2 ended up making only half of its predecessor in the United States. Although its budget was only $37 million, you got to take into account the percentages of the gross were given to get the actors on board. So it really did prove very costly. And so they considered it kind of a flop. And in addition to Batman coming out, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids really cut into that kids market that they were trying to also co-opt with this effort by making it a little bit more family friendly. Now, as far as my personal points of view, when I first saw Ghostbusters 2 in the theaters in 1989, I was very disappointed. Now, obviously, I was not in that kid's demographic at the time as so many other people who grew up loving Ghostbusters 2 were. I was already in college at the time Ghostbusters 2 came out. So when I saw this kind of neutered version, this kind of kid-friendly version, I really did not like it. I thought it was unfathomable that all of these contributors would come back. The core contributors, you have all of the cast, the same writers, the same director, and yet they could not replicate the appeal in almost any fashion of the first film. All of the things that I found so funny, so endearing, and so sometimes frightening were just not there this time out. The creative minds just seem to be begrudgingly consenting to do this sequel and putting out what I considered to be, at that time, a half-hearted effort. I think one of the big story quibbles that I had that I could not get over was that the city at the beginning of this film viewed the Ghostbusters as some sort of hucksters who could make a bunch of phony ghost attacks happen. I mean, anybody who sees the first film knows that there is really no possible way that they could wreck the havoc that occurred all on their own. I mean, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, I mean, how do you fake that? It just did not make any sense. The plausibility just wasn't there from a story angle and beyond these very broad characterizations that they brought in for this new kid-friendly Ghostbusters, the actors seemed hampered by that emphasis. The creators seemed too mindful that many kids expected the tone and the style of the animated television cartoon, The Real Ghostbusters. So replacing the scary ghosts from the first film are now these more cartoonish comical ones. And the gags that were a little bit racy for the time, like a ghost unzipping Ray's pants in the middle of the night or ugly, horrific creatures that sometimes were kind of nightmare-inducing. In their place were these totally ineffectual ghosts that just seemed like they were 3D renderings of cartoons. And then we have all of these cute baby moments and dancing toasters and 
these oddball characters with funny accents and the normally womanizing Peter, he seems to be completely neutered this time out. He's kind of a wimp in this film. And I think perhaps worst of all, at least the way that I was thinking at the time, the witty banter, the camaraderie that seems so effortless in Ghostbusters just seems so forced here. You could almost hear like Reitman yelling at the cast, we need more witty banter here. Everybody act witty and start bantering and somehow make funny happen. But given the rush schedule, they didn't have enough time to get it all together. And then with all of the reshoots, all of that comic timing seemed to be forced out to try to placate audiences and their expectations this time out. So as far as how I feel about it today, I try every year or two. I watch Ghostbusters 2. Usually after I watch the first one, there are elements that I like, but I just never quite have cotton to it. There are moments that make me genuinely smile or laugh. And I really do love this cast. It's just hard for me to hate a Ghostbusters film outright. And yet, considering how much I absolutely adore the first Ghostbusters, to see a lackluster effort for everybody involved makes Ghostbusters 2 one of the most disappointing follow-ups that I can think of from a fan standpoint. And I think one distinction is that I did not grow up watching the real Ghostbusters cartoon, and I didn't see this film as a kid. I think if you see it as a kid, you're probably much more forgiving because a lot of the humor here really aims much more toward that demographic. Whereas, like I said, I was in college and so I was not in the mood for a kid film. I loved everything about the first film. I loved all the characters, and yet they're here replaced by a lot of things I didn't find nearly as funny, and a lot of these characters are just not as appealing this time out. And it was just very sad to see them in this light. So Ghostbusters 2, I would say, if I had to compare it, it's like one of the creepy apparitions featured within the film itself, kind of a faded ghost of its former self. It's curiously uninvolving compared to the first film, so much so that if there were a river of mood slime flowing beneath the movie theaters showing this, the emotions of the disinterested audiences wouldn't have affected much of a ripple. I think the result here, the metaphor I would use, is kind of exemplified in the scene where Ray and Winston are trying to entertain these kids at a birthday party. These kids clearly are not having it, and I can't blame them because I'd rather also see He-Man than a cuddly, watered-down version of the real Ghostbusters that came and saw and kicked ass in the Fantastic First film. So as much as I would really love to be able to see this film in the way that a lot of other people have come around to enjoying it or at least embracing it, or in some cases, like my daughter actually thinks it's a better film than the first one, believe it or not. You know, she's nine years old, so I guess there are definitely different perspectives depending on your age and what you're expecting going in. But for me, I can't give this film anything more than two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that it has the tools and it has the talent to be something more. By the way, when I say it has the tools and has the talent, that is a Ghostbusters quote I've been using all this time, knowingly. But it just couldn't quite get it together. I think this time out, the focus just wasn't there. I think they were trying to put it all together. And the fact that they were trying to compete with the real Ghostbusters cartoon, it just threw the balance off. And in comedy, when you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle twice, which is almost impossible to do when you have a winning comedy follow-up. I mean, there are very few comedies that you can name that are anywhere near as good as the first one if they ever have a sequel. Whatever chemistry they had going from Ghostbusters just did not translate five years later into Ghostbusters 2 and a middling effort results. And that's why I can only give Ghostbusters 2 
two and a half stars. So my apologies to fans are out there who are shaking their fist at me for not giving it my full endorsement. So anyway, a lot more continued after this Ghostbusters I was going to go into. I started writing down all of the things that came out, video games, comic books, you know, the 2016 kind of offshoot that they had with the all-female Ghostbusters. And of course, sometime in 2021, they're going to release the official third Ghostbusters film, Ghostbusters Afterlife. I've decided that I'm going to take all of that information and I'm going to work it into the Ghostbusters Afterlife review. So all of the things that came after Ghostbusters and all of the attempts to try to get a third Ghostbusters film off the ground, look for that on the Quipster Film Review Podcast, my companion podcast to this, sometime later in the year when Ghostbusters Afterlife comes out. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If I didn't disappoint you by giving it kind of a middling review myself. If you have your own thoughts on Ghostbusters, whether you want to agree with me or whether you want to tell me all the reasons why Ghostbusters 2 is just as good or if not better than the first Ghostbusters, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be covering next, well, ghost comedy, a big one from the 1980s, you can think of. A film that I did mention at one point during the body of this review, Beetlejuice, the Tim Burton film from 1988 and that will be what i cover on the next episode so check that out if you haven't done so in quite a while it's definitely one of those films that has its big fans whether i'm on board well i guess you'll have to tune in next week for beetlejuice until then thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies (laughs) 